0: When you open a restaurant, you put a great deal of attention into all of the details because you want to set the culture. You want to set the ethos of that restaurant. You want to think through how it's going to look and how it's going to feel, what the first impression of the customer will be from the the moment they pull into the parking lot or walk through the door, what it's going to look and feel like, what the tables are going to be set like, what kind of person is going to greet you when you walk in, what kind of voice or tone they will have, what kind of food you're going to have on the menu, what kind of proper order and procedure you're going to have, because you, you want to get it right from the very get-go. Because once you launch the entity, once you open the restaurant, if you open it up and it's wrong, it's really, really hard to go back and fix it. And when Jesus launched his family, the church— He was very, very intentional about what kind of ethos, what kind of culture, what kind of priorities and assumptions and values he wanted shaping it. And he was very eager to protect that culture from anyone who would come in to change it from being a hospital for sinners and turn it instead into a club for saints. We're going to look this morning at one of the hardest passages in the Christian New Testament. It is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And I want to ask you to be open-minded as you look at this, that it may be carrying a message that is different from what you might naturally assume, given your own religious or spiritual background. It's Acts chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 36, actually, and continue through 516. This is the account of the early church as... All of the Christians are selling their property and distributing it to those in need. We read in Acts four thirty six that Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What, you, what made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and he died. And great fear seized all who heard what happened. And then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they'll carry you out also. And at that moment she too fell down at his feet and died and then the young men came in and finding her dead carried her out and buried her beside her husband and great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people and all the believers used to meet in Solomon's colonnade No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. And crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick. And those tormented by spirits and all of them we're healed. What do we see here? On the surface, we read a passage in which someone sinned and ended up dead, but there are two very different ways to understand this passage. What's going on here? What is this really about? Friends, this passage is about the danger of moralism, and specifically substituting moralism for the gospel. The moralist reading of this passage, of course, is plain: Don't sin or God's going to judge you. You know, you read the passage on the surface without understanding the gospel, without understanding the apostolic message, without understanding the larger narrative of of, of grace from from Genesis to Revelation. and, And it sounds like that's the point. They sinned. They got caught. They sin more by lying about it. So God judged them. And then everybody got terrified of God and tried to stop sinning. It's a basic works based reading of the passage. And it's what most religions teach in one form or another. And it's what most folks assume Christianity teaches. But it gets it all wrong. Such a reading reverses the actual meaning of the passage. See, moralism was not the solution. Moralism was the underlying problem. Look at Ananias. Look at Sapphira. What is their spirituality? Their spirituality is that they believe that they must project a facade of righteousness. And so they see other people selling land and giving it away. And so they sell land and they keep a bunch of it to themselves, but they give some of it away. And they say, look, we're giving away all of the money for the land. Look at us. We're so righteous. We're so holy. We are so awesome. We're so generous and then they get caught now this isn't really the amount is it you're you're trying to look self-righteous here but that's not what's really going on is it you held some for yourself you need to admit that no 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 this is the amount problem with moralism. It's a mask of righteousness, and that's what was going on in in Ananias and his wife. And and they got caught, and they're they're saying, you know, we're righteous. They're insisting. You can almost hear between their words saying, we are righteous. We do not need a savior. When all they had to do was say, yeah, we held some back and be the big shameful sinner in front of everybody. See, that's the problem with a mask is that behind it, you're dead. Ananias was filled with duplicity. He was pretending. He was posing. He was deceitful then when confronted about it. Then he lied to the Holy Spirit, which it specifies he lied to God. Outwardly righteous, inwardly dead. We have a picture. Uh, Could we get that first slide up here? Jesus uh, talked about this in Matthew 23 when he spoke of the religious leaders of his day, and he said that they were whitewashed sepulchres. Uh, it's it's really beautiful, a little temple. These are a couple in in you know in Palestine uh, from that era. You've got beautiful columns. I can't tell those are probably Doric orders. I can't tell a pyramid on top carved into the side. Really lovely, beautiful buildings. But what's inside of them? But but dead people. Uh, these are funerary markers. Uh, outwardly, Jesus says, really beautiful, righteous, stunning, alive. Inwardly there is no life. Everything is dead. And moralism can look a lot like Christianity. Thank you. Uh, It's a mask that covers over an inner condition of death. And so, friends, moralism can thrive in the churches. Uh, How many of you grew up in homes or in churches in which you felt you had to hide your real brokenness inside? How many of you felt you needed to hide your shame You needed to hide your sin. You needed to wear a mask. You need to put it on tight. You need to outwardly be a good boy or a good girl so that you will gain approval and acceptance. Friends, it's the opposite of the gospel. Was your home a safe place to struggle? Was your church a safe place to be a sinner? A big, bad, ugly sinner loved by Jesus. See, moralism can thrive in the churches. It had already overtaken Ananias. It had already overtaken Sapphira. They were wearing their mask. They were wearing it tight. They were projecting righteousness, covering over the reality that did need a Savior and needed it desperately. There's a guy named Stuart Moffat who awoke one Saturday before Easter. And he loaded his wife and his three kids into the family car and he headed to the annual Easter egg hunt in the British town of Holford, Somerset. About 25 kids were at the, the Easter egg and they had, the, you know, the whole field had been hidden, eggs everywhere. And uh, they gathered and set the little kids loose. And, and uh, Stuart noticed as he looked out that there was one little three-year-old boy out by the road uh, and he was playing with what looked like an Easter egg and he was standing on top of it and Stuart was thinking, you know, they were already kind of going around to see if there were any eggs that hadn't been found that had been forgotten and he, he didn't remember ever putting an egg out by the edge of the road so he walked over to this little, little three-year-old guy and, uh, and he notices this kid at this point is standing on the Easter egg, but it's not cracking like the plastic ones would. So he gets down and looks at it more closely, and he sees that it's a little larger than the other eggs, and it's it's hard, and it's bumpy, and it's kind of a dark green and misshapen. And then he realizes what this is. It was a hand grenade. And so he very gently picks this little boy up off of it and backs up, and they call in the bomb and arson squad who come in. And in fact, it was a hand grenade, and it was a live hand grenade that had been sitting at that place since World War II. And they detonated it, and there was a huge explosion. But you can't blame this little three year old for thinking this was an Easter egg. Why? Because it was Easter. They were at an Easter egg hunt in a field filled with Easter eggs, and it looked like an Easter egg, and it was shaped like an Easter egg, and it was exactly where you would expect an Easter egg to be. And that's the problem with moralism in the church. Sometimes it can look just like Christianity on the outside. With Ananias and Sapphira, it looked like generous, self-sacrificial giving, exactly what we want in our churches. We encourage that. It was so selfless outside, but it was a hand grenade. And the grenade went off, and it went off when they were holding it tightly in their hands. Friends, be careful what you pick up in churches. That need to hide the real you, to pretend you've got it all together, that projection that you're one of the good people and not one of the bad people, all the things that accompany it, the critical attitude the sense of superiority about a particular parenting style or worship style or theological perspective, all of the gossip that goes with that, the the belief that our church is better than other churches, the theological pride the need to look spiritual, the outward projection of godliness, that mask you wear. Be careful what you pick up in churches, friends, because moralism can thrive in our very communities, and when you pick it up, it can explode and it can destroy your very soul. Remember how Tim Keller talks about the prodigal son. And the elder brother, one of the most famous stories that Jesus told, one of his most popular illustrations for a man who taught in parables. He talked about two brothers. One of them was the bad kid and one was the good kid. The younger brother was the bad kid. And he took his inheritance early, implying that he wished his dad was already dead. And he went off and he lived in a wild and crazy lifestyle and then eventually ran out of money and ended up poor and famine came and he was a slave basically working in an unclean pigsty. And he thought, I need to go home. Uh, maybe, maybe I can't be a son anymore, but maybe I can be a slave. And then he goes home, and the father won't hear anything of that. He actually sees him from far off, lifts up his skirts, grabs his kid, kisses him, hugs him, puts his signet ring on his finger, puts his cloak, his righteous cloak, on his shoulder, then gives instructions for a huge party. They slay the fatted calf. They have singing, dancing, and all the while the older brother has been working out in the fields. And he hears the dancing, and he hears the music, and he goes home and he asks one of the servants, what's going on here? He says, your, your younger brother is back. And so dad slayed the fatted calf. He had to celebrate. And the older brother, who's always done the right thing, he refuses. The father come and pleads with him, come, join in the celebration. Join in the party of the kingdom of God. And he says, I can't do it. I won't do it. He refuses. Why, he says, because all these years I slaved for you and you never so much as gave me a little calf. Friends, there are two ways to be damned. You can be damned because of your sin or you can be damned because of your righteousness. And for the moralist, their righteousness is what they can't let go of. No, this is the price. No, we gave it all away. We're generous. We have integrity. It's going to destroy you. Ananias and Sapphira were a lot like the elder brother. They were so concerned with appearing righteous. They were so concerned to, to look holy. And it, it kills the soul. It poisons you. Maybe you haven't drunk the Kool-Aid all the way down, but, but is it possible you've been sipping it? How would you know if you're substituting moralism for grace? Some of the diagnostics is you're going to be like the elder brother and that you're going to feel more like a slave than like a son. You're going to be mad at God when he doesn't reward you when you do things right. You're going to be despairing when you do things wrong. You're not going to be able, like Ananias and Sapphira, to see your own sin or to own it or to really let other people see it. You're going to minimize your own sin and you're going to maximize other people's. You're going to grow a critical spirit. You're going to find yourself constantly evaluating other people, judging them in your heart, criticizing them. You may find a coldness toward God in your own heart because you're substituting your own religious performance for your Savior. You may, like the elder brother, look down on younger brother types and have disdain for certain classes of sinners that you categorize in your own heart and mind. You may live on a success-fail basis And that's a burden that that never goes away, that drive that never settles down, never stops, never lets you rest, never lets you truly, fully, and spiritually rest. And that burden gets heavier, and it gets heavier, and ultimately it crushes you. It may show up in your health. It may show up in your relationships. It may show up in your marriage. Perhaps you feel ashamed. And you can't bear the thought of anyone seeing the real you, the you on the inside. And so it leaves you living in constant anxiety, unable to get out. This is a warning from our Savior about the danger of moralism as counterfeit Christianity. So what's the gospel reading here? The gospel reading is that Jesus will do whatever it takes to protect in his church that gospel culture The gospel is com- it's The opposite The radicality of the message of God's grace Is, is what Paul describes In, in 2 Corinthians as, as, as the great exchange To use Luther's term for it That God made him who had no sin And And, 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 and that he took Jesus Who had no sin and, and, and he became sin for us So that in him we might become The righteousness of God What does that mean? That means that you with all of your sin, me with all of my sin, I've spent decades and decades sinning. Word, thought, and deed, you know, Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love God with all of your heart and all of your mind, 16 sixteenths of your soul, 100.0% of your strength, and that's the greatest commandment. That means I have been committing the greatest sin 24-7, nonstop my entire life. I haven't loved God with all of my heart for five minutes. My motives are always mixed. And all of that shame, all of that guilt, he then takes and transfers from me, from you, to Jesus on the cross. Jesus in Gethsemane, already feeling the weight of that sin upon him, already feeling the Father's rejection and going to the cross and suffering not just physical death, but spiritual hell on the cross as the Father rejects him completely on the cross instead of us. That's forgiveness, friends, when your debt's paid for, but that's only half of the great exchange. Because the other half, as it's described in Scripture, is that Christ, who was always righteous, who always did what pleased the Father, his righteousness, his honor is then credited to your account so that then you receive a righteousness not from your own performance of God's law, but the righteousness that is by faith, the righteousness of Christ who gives his righteousness to those of us who have no righteousness of our own. Friends, that means that that drive inside of you to perform and to measure up, you now have the resume of Jesus Christ. You now always did what pleased the Father. You raised Lazarus from the dead. You were the one who fed the 5,000. All of the honor and glory of Christ is now credited to you who believe so that you can be the big, bad sinner clothed in the honor of God, washed and clean and acceptable, so that God is pleased with you. That's more than forgiveness. See, forgiveness, some of you are stuck on forgiveness, and you don't have any joy because you just think you're forgiven, and you don't yet accept that God has declared you righteous and worthy, worthy of his blessing. See, forgiveness says you may go now, but righteousness says, no, you may come now. Uh, You know, I've used the Commerce Bank illustration a million times, you know, you you know, forgiveness is when you go into Commerce Bank and you've defaulted on your mortgage and you've got three loans that you're defaulted on and you've charged up four credit cards up beyond the limit and you've got all of these fees and you don't have a nickel to pay any of it off and you sit down and the banker looks at you and says, okay, well, just this once, we're going to forgive you. And so they cancel all of the loans, they pay off the mortgage, they, they cancel all of the fees. This is really good service at Commerce Bank. And you walk out and at that point, are you forgiven? Yes. Two other things. At that point, you have not a dime to your name. You're broke. And at that point, Commerce Bank doesn't ever want to see your face again. That's what forgiveness feels like if it's just forgiveness. Righteousness is when the CEO of Commerce Bank comes running out the door after you saying, please come back in. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. We made a terrible mistake. And he takes you in down the long hallway into the corner office and he sits you behind his desk with the one with windows on two sides, you know, the corner office. And he has you sit down in the big, plush, kind of leathery, mid-century thing that he sits in every day. And he says, I'm so sorry, that was a mistake. We're just going to sign over all of the accounts in the bank over to your name and all the assets of the bank, and it's now your bank, and I am glad to serve you. Thank you. And then they put your, your picture up on the wall. You know, that's, that's righteousness. That's access to the halls of power. That's a ticker tape parade. That is the Congressional you know, Medal of Honor that's the gospel. Ray Ortland likens the difference between law and gospel to the difference between being married to two different spouses. Uh, imagine you're a stay-at-home parent, and, and you used to be married to Mr. Law, the law of God. And Mr. Law was a good guy in his own way, but he didn't really appreciate your weakness. And so he came home every evening, and he asked, So how was your day? Did you do all the tasks I told you to do? Did you make the kids behave? Did you waste any time today? Did you complete everything I put on your to-do list? So many demands, so many expectations. Hard as we try, couldn't be perfect. We could never measure up. We could never do it right. We could never satisfy him. And so we forgot things that were important to him. We let the children misbehave. We failed in other ways. It was a miserable marriage because Mr. Law always pointed out our failings. And the worst of it was that he was always right. But his remedy was always the same. Do better tomorrow. And we didn't do better tomorrow because we couldn't do better tomorrow. And that's what it's like being married to God's law. And Ortling continues saying, but then Mr. Law passed away. And we remarried, this time to Mr. Grace. Our new husband, Jesus, comes home every evening and the house is a mess. The children are misbehaving horribly. Dinner is burning on the stove. And when we're honest with him, we've even had other men over to the house while he wasn't there. Still, Jesus sweeps us up into his arms and says, I love you. I chose you. I died for you. And I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And our hearts melt because we don't understand that kind of love. It's grace. We expect him to despise us and reject us, and shame us, and humiliate us, but he treats us well. He tells us we belong to him now and forever. Friends, being married to the law of God will never change you. That kind of marriage can't set you free, because it can't deal with the brokenness. But to be in a relationship with Jesus, to be numbered within his bride of the church, have that security that acceptance that loyalty it frees us up to be open and honest about how damaged we really are so that he can then touch us in our most damaged place with his restoring grace and love it means i don't have to work to please god because jesus already did that for me i don't have to prove myself that's already been done I can be free to walk into any room as a complete sinner and not need anybody's approval because I have the approval of God. Jesus is jealous to guard a gospel culture for his church. It's the point of the passage. That ethos, that culture, is when it's threatened, he will do what it takes to make sure that that, that the church remains a hospital for sinners like us. You know, uh, I remember the story of uh, a medical resident who was, he was doing his residency, and this particular week he was going to be in a clinic that specialized in STDs. And uh, he showed up the first day of, of clinic, and he walked in, and there was a long line of men waiting in one little window at the other end with a lady at the window sliding it back and forth. And he, he walked around the line and went up to the window, and he knocked on the window, and she slid it open, and she says, uh, what do you want? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm here. Uh, I need to see a doctor. And she says, get in line. And he says, no, but you don't understand. I, I am a doctor. I'm a medical resident. She says, I don't care if you're the Pope. I don't care if you're the King of England. You got your disease the same way everybody else did. So get in line and wait your turn in line. And she slams it shut. And he sits around and he doesn't know what to do. So he goes and he gets in line. He says, it's going to take a while. The longer he stands in that line, a wave of shame comes over him as he feels for the first time in his life the full weight of his own human brokenness. His face is turning red. He's getting hot. The shame, it's burning at him. Friends, if you want to know Jesus, you've got to take your spot in the line of shame with the rest of us. And be the big, bad, shameful sinner. Because Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. He says, healthy people don't need a physician, only the sick. And if you want to have the power of Jesus in your life, you can't be Ananias claiming that you have no sin in you. You can't wear that mask of righteousness. You have to pull it off and stand in the line as a shameful sinner And then let Jesus love you in that line. And what do we see when Jesus reinforces his gospel culture? When he allows us to take off those masks and to be the sinner, loved as sinners, precious as sinners, righteous and delighted as he sings over us with his joy. What we see is we see people freely sacrificing on purpose, People are selling their land and giving it away. Why? Because they don't need their land and their money to make them special. They have been made special by their Savior, who loves them. What else do you see here? You see the church becomes a safe place for people who are truly, deeply broken. As God adds to their number daily, new Christians, new converts. You see the church is a, a, a safe place for people with problems, Non-Christians are coming and taking their sick and putting them out in mats so that they can have some access to this community of grace so that they can perhaps have Peter's shadow fall over them. You know, if you're feeling a weight of shame this morning, maybe you can't pay your bills, maybe your relationships are a wreck, maybe you're dealing with an addiction, maybe you're horrified by what you've become. Friends, Jesus loves to throw open the doors of his church and bid in the broken and the bruised and the damaged and the poor so that they could come in and find rest. He was doing it 2,000 years ago, and he's doing it today. Why? Because Jesus loves sinners like us. It's the broken, the damaged, the weak that God chooses. Those who know they need a rescuer, those who bring their sin to Jesus so that Jesus can transform it into something truly beautiful. It was on January 24th of 1975 that the world-renowned pianist, Keith Jarrett, was scheduled to play in front of a live audience in the Cologne Opera House. The concert was to be recorded, but there were problems. Jarrett had originally requested the use of a Bosendorfer 290 Imperial Concert Grand Piano for his performance but there was some confusion by the Opera House staff and instead they had found another Bozendorfer piano backstage, it was a much smaller baby grand piano that they used for rehearsals and they placed it on stage instead and according to uh, Vera Brandis, the concert's organizer, the substitute piano, quote, was completely out of tune, the black notes in the middle didn't work the pedals were stuck and the piano was unplayable, end quote. Upon arriving at the concert hall, Brandis remembers that Keith played a few notes and then he stepped back from the piano. She says, Then Jared's producer played a few notes and they didn't say a word. They circled the instrument several times and they tried a few of the keys and then there was a long, long silence and then the producer came to me and said, if you don't get another piano, Keith can't play tonight. Phone calls were made. Pleas were sent out, but there was silence. It was the night of the concert. There wasn't another piano, and the hall was sold out. I mean, yes, they could issue people refunds, but they had no way of notifying people in 1975. There was no email. There was no internet. Nobody had a phone log to call everybody, and so people would be showing up at the concert hall, and they'd be valeting their cars, and they'd be going to dinner, and they'd be walking in, and they'd find the doors were shut, and then they'd find out that there's no concert. I mean, they could reschedule it, but it would be a disaster. It was sold out with possibly the worst piano in Cologne, a broken piano that was too small by half, that was out of tune, with the black keys in the middle not working. Jarrett looked at the piano. Everyone knew at that point the show would have to be canceled. You can just imagine Jarrett, as he walked around with the piano, as he looked down on that dreadful little piano that was out of tune and too small, not fit for a concert hall, unworthy of a a, a true master, and that was missing the black keys in the middle, you you can imagine as he looked at it and he said, okay, tonight, this little piano and I are going to make music. He had decided to go ahead with the concert with the concert with the pint-sized piano that was broken and out of tune and missing the black keys in the middle. I mean, you can imagine his producer objecting fiercely, but it was clear from that point, Jarrett had made up his mind. He had made his choice. He had chosen that he would make music with the imperfect piano that was the wrong size and that had keys that were too high or too low and that was missing what? The black keys in the middle. The lights dimmed as the show was to begin. Crowds were gathering. You could almost see the expressions on the faces of of all of the music critics sitting there looking at this tiny pint-sized piano, baby grand that was obviously not in the best of condition and they would, would have been thinking, this can't be right. Is this a mistake? Is this some kind of joke? What is going on? This looks horrible. It's shameful and it's undignified. And as the stage lights came up, the crowd quieted. We've got a picture of that moment as Keith Jarrett walked across the stage. He took a bow before taking his seat at the sad little Bosendorfer. I think that's the right one. That's what they put on the cover of the album. The crowd was hushed. And then fingers came down and the first notes filled the hall. The minute he played the first note, everybody knew this was going to be magic. The audience looked on in awed silence. The night's performance began with a simple chiming series of notes, then quickly gained in complexity. Jarrett was standing up playing one minute, then he was sitting down to play the next. He was moaning and groaning as he played, writhing as he coaxed sounds out of that piano that few knew a piano could make. Jarrett didn't hold back in any way as he pummeled the unplayable piano to produce a sound that was so unique something so exquisite, something that transcended the world of Western music up to that time. One music critic noted afterwards, Mr. Jarrett turned the banal and familiar into something gorgeous and truly mysterious. The album for the concert was recorded that night. It was released in autumn of 1975 to critical acclaim and went on to become the best-selling solo album in the history of jazz and the all-time best-selling piano album of all time. Friends, you may be sitting here today and you might be that sad Bosendorfer. You might be out of tune You might be broken. You might be missing the black keys in the middle. And you might feel a weight of shame whenever somebody sees your flaws and your failings and the things you don't want your spouse to even know about. But friends, you might be on stage, but Jesus is on stage as well. And he has looked upon you and he has said, I have made up my mind. I have chosen you and you and I are going to make music there shall be no other instrument for me. Friends, that's the grace of the gospel. Not that we project the facade of righteousness so that we can measure up, but so that we can take off the mask and be broken and be damaged and allow Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to come and make us instruments of noble purpose, not because we're fixed now, but but, but for the beauty of what he will do when he transforms your brokenness and your shame into something truly mysterious. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is the gospel that you are committed to placing at the heart of your church this new community, a spirit of grace, an ethos of compassion, of acceptance, of understanding as you have chosen to love sinners like us. We thank you for your love, Lord, that you have called us and chosen us to be found in Christ, not with a righteousness of our own that comes from God's law, but the righteousness of Christ that clothes us and makes us acceptable to you and pleasing in your sight as you rejoice over us with singing. We thank you for that reality, Lord, displayed in this sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We consecrate to you now the elements on this table, this bread and this cup, that you administer grace and weave us together as the people of God. We thank you for it in the name of Christ, your Son. Amen.